All right, would you please open your Bibles to the book of Galatians this morning? I'm going to look at Galatians chapter 3. I'm actually going to do something slightly different, and then I'm not going to read out of the ESV. <laughs> Sacrilege. I know. What did you say? <laughs> I'm going to read this morning from uh, the New Living Translation, and I'll have it up here on the monitors for you. We're teaching through the book of Galatians right now, a series that we've entitled No Other Gospel. Um, We've had the opportunity over the last few weeks to solidify in our hearts, in our minds, what the gospel is, thereby bolstering our faith and our ability to recognize what is counterfeit as we build up what is true in our hearts and minds, correct? But also with that, we've had the opportunity to take aim at a couple of cultural gospels which are dominant within today's day and age to try, again, just to identify the counterfeit and so better arm and equip ourselves to address those whom we would come into contact with or those cultural ideologies that would promote itself in the place where only the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be in our hearts. And so we've entitled this No Other Gospel, and this morning I've entitled today's message specifically No Other Spirit. And so I want to read the first five verses, is all I'm going to look at this morning, of Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And again, this is the New Living Translation, and we'll have it up for you here. I just, I I liked the way that the New Living Translation translated Paul's words here, and I felt like it helped summarize it very well. O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you this Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It's because you believe the message you heard about Christ. So much of what we have heard thus far, Paul has been establishing the the doctrine of justification. And I'm not going to go back and teach that, but you can listen to the past few weeks where the doctrine of justification is essentially the declaration to us from God that we are not guilty because of the faith that we place in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be justified. It's a legal term saying that because of the sin In our life, we stood guilty before the judgment of God. But Christ Jesus on the cross fulfilled God's righteous demand for justice and gave himself obediently, perfectly, completely, fully for us. And all we must do is say, yes, I believe, and by faith, take a hold in our hearts and minds. And everything that Christ accomplished on the cross is appropriated, it's counted or credited to us as having been accomplished by ourself. Isn't that amazing? And so this has been Paul's 
point thus far. And he's establishing that justification comes by faith. It does not come by anything that you do. It cannot be accomplished by any human effort. Specifically, Paul's speaking to churches in Galatia who are a mixture of Jew and Gentile believers. And there are those within the Jewish faith, the, the, the Judaizers who have come in who have said to these Gentile believers, well, yes, it is belief in Jesus Christ, but you also need to add to it this. And there was these outlines of obeying the Mosaic law that were being imposed upon the churches in Galatia. And Paul's saying, no, listen, do you not remember? And so emphatically now in the beginning of, verse, of chapter 3, he's, he's changed his orientation and he's spoken in the last couple chapters about just his right as an apostle and his, his, his kind of accreditation, if you will, as an apostle and reminding them that this is what the gospel is. And then he gets to this point and it's like, how foolish are you, Galatian people? And I appreciate it as, as Rick just spoke, encouraging us at the end of our singing to delve deeper and to go, to go deeper into the things of the Spirit. And this is exactly what I am just hoping and praying and endeavoring to establish this morning. And so I want to take these five verses today and I want to extract something wonderful in Paul's theology of justification it's a profound reality for both the people in that moment, but of course us as well in this time, that I believe provides for us a rich foundation for our everyday Christian experience. And so I'm going to speak this morning on the Holy Spirit's work in our justification. And I want to also add to that, as we'll see, the Holy Spirit's work in our sanctification. And I'm going to tie those two together, even though Paul is not necessarily using the language of sanctification, we're going to see how justification is just that very thing in our life. So as I said, I've entitled today's teaching, No Other Spirit. And there's a quote by A.W. Tozer that we have quoted here many times over the years. In his book, The Attributes of God, he makes this statement, all of God does all that God does. Let me just say that again. Simple, but actually quite profound. All of God, I probably should have said it this way. The cadence is, all of God does all that God does. All of God does all that God does. In other words, when God acts, every aspect of who he is in his being, every character, every quality, every single bit and part and piece that we know of God. When God acts, all of him acts and is engaged in that act. And Tozer will also say, when it comes to our justification, in which that's the context that he's making that statement, when it comes to our justification, he says, all of the attributes of God are on the sinner's side. I love that. There's no conflict being engaged between God's righteous judgment and God's mercy, all of God is on our side in the moment of our justification. So this view then, this statement of all of God does all that God does, leads us to see that justification is not just an act of God alone, but that His Spirit participates wholly and uniquely in this process of our justification. 
And so seamlessly here, it's interesting if we look at this language, and I got hung up here, which is why I've decided to only look at five verses this morning, because Paul, as I already said, he's been talking about Christ and Christ and Christ and what Christ has accomplished in chapter two. And the, the emphasis has been on God as the divine initiator and, and as Christ as the divine effector for the work of justification as I talked about last week. But now all of a sudden he begins to appeal to their experience of the Holy Spirit in their life. And he introduces a theme that we'll find that he's going to come back to towards the end of his letter in, in the later chapters, particularly in chapter 5, when he speaks to them about freedom in the Spirit and in the fruit of the flesh in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. And he calls to their attention that it's really the Spirit who has been at work and in fact even still is at work in their life to establish the gospel within their hearts and to apply the fullness of grace to them and to their life. And so this is the point that I want to make today for us, church. The Holy Spirit accompanies the true gospel. And true, by true I mean the gospel that is law-free that is works-free, that is human effort-free. The Holy Spirit accompanies the true gospel in order to establish and to apply the effects of justification in the believer's life. Not just once, but ongoing. Only the message of Jesus Christ brings with it a power to know and to walk in that knowledge. Only the gospel of Jesus comes with a power to understand the gospel, comes with a power to live a gospel life, to live obediently, comes with the power to, to not just obey, but to finish the race of faith that has been marked out for us. Only that gospel, brothers and sisters. No other gospel is accompanied by any divine or sovereign power. There's a theologian whose commentary I've enjoyed greatly as I begin to study the book of Galatians, and his name is Philip Ryken. And I want to share, I've got two different quotes with you today that I want to share. And let me just give you this first one. In his commentary on the book of Galatians, he says it like this, that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior, and now the Father and the Son send the Spirit to convert the sinner. Again, all of God does all that God does. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together to enact. So often I think we think we, can, we, we have a tendency, and I, I, I think it's just because of the great mystery and the great awe and wonder that comes with the gospel sometimes, but we compartmentalize or we, we, we put things in neat little boxes like, okay, this is what justification is, this is my salvation, and now I move on to this in my life, and this is my sanctification. But what I just want us to kind of be in, enamored by this morning and caught up in is just how all of it is God working together in the beginning, in the present, and in the end. It's God, brothers and sisters. It's God who is at work within us. And it's our firm statement of yes by faith that takes hold of everything that God is doing. Amen? Yes. All right. Is this okay? You guys okay? All right. 
And so therefore, the order of our life is not simply justification first, and then we move on to sanctification, leaving kind of justification in the past. Sanctification is the present application of justification being proclaimed to us, being worked out in us by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? I gave you a a couple of big terminologies there. Sanctification is justification being presently applied, being worked out in us by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, we were justified, we were declared not guilty. Sanctification is the proclamation of not guilty being spoken to us over and over and over, and the application of what God did here, it being applied to our life now, tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. It's beautiful, church. It's beautiful how God has designed this process, this life of the Christian. And do we understand what sanctification is, right? Sanctification is our process or the process by which God is transforming us into a greater Christ-likeness or conforming us into holiness. That's what sanctification is. And so in our salvation, it's the Holy Spirit's purpose to apply the effects of justification to our lives each and every day, thereby changing us and conforming us to Christ. And so, but to make this point, Paul has to first establish that the Spirit was in fact given to them, not received because of something that they did, but given freely to them by their faith. So in order for them to believe this justification worked out through sanctification, this not guilty producing holiness in our life, Paul has to establish how is it in fact that you actually receive the Spirit? Do you receive the Holy Spirit by what you do or do you receive the Spirit by faith? And we're going to see here in a moment that Paul has kind of just puts out four or five rhetorical questions because the answers are obvious. And he says this in verse 2. Now again, this is kind of going back I'm going to use the ESV as the language here this morning. But he goes back in verse 2 and he says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Because if it was received by works, then the question becomes again, what must I do rather than what has God done for me? And so as I said, Paul's question, of course, is rhetorical because the answer is obvious, and it's based off of all that they had already experienced thus far. So his purpose in asking him this question, church, was to bring to mind, again, the great acts that God had done among them. And again, he's writing not just to one single church, but to church is in a region that is known as Galatia. And if we were to go back and trace a bit of the establishing of the churches in Galatia, we would see that we've, it's found in a lot of Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14. And we're not going to look at it, but let me just remind you. So this was, imp- this was implicit in Paul's words. 
But for us that are here today, Acts chapter 14 accounts where Paul and Barnabas go to Iconium, and they go to preach the word of the Lord. And there's, there's a great response to the word of God. And the religious leaders in Iconium hear of Paul and see the great response and the many number that are coming to Christ, and they seek to stone Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas, they flee. And they move on, and they go into Lystra. And they find a, a man who was crippled from birth. And they heal, or the Holy Spirit through them, heals this crippled man from birth, and many come to believe. And then what happens is that the religious leaders in Iconium hear what's happening in Lystra. And not only that, but there's other religious leaders from Antioch, and they come to Paul and Barnabas, and they drag them out of the city, and they have their way with stoning them, leaving them for dead. And the, the language in Acts, church, is so fantastic. It's as though Paul just stands up, brushes himself off from being stoned, turns around, goes right back into the city and begins to preach again. It's absolutely remarkable. This is what the Holy Spirit had done amongst the people and amongst the churches in Galatia. They had heard, they had seen perhaps, some of them, with their own eyes, how the great hand of God had been for them and in establishing His word. And it was faith in the God within these works that had granted them the same spirit who worked within Paul, who worked within Barnabas. I was looking at some pictures. You guys know the, the illustrator. He's, I think he's like 19th century. His name's Gustav Dorr. I know you've seen his, his is it Dorre? Oh, thank you, Janet. I can always count on you too. I'm so thankful for you. Yeah, so he's got these, we've probably all seen them, but he's got these magnificent illustrations of just biblical accounts and moments. And I was looking at one of them just this last week, and it was on the stoning of Stephen, which you've probably seen that too, and maybe you just don't even know that you've seen his, his work before. But I'm telling you, these aren't just small rocks that these men are holding in their hands. We're talking about these massive stones being wielded above heads. I think sometimes when we think of stoning, we think of like Monty Python and the, you know, the meeting of the life of Brian or something where they're throwing like pebbles at people. No, we're talking about massive stones. Brothers and sisters, when someone is stoned and left for dead, damage has been done. But, but the testimony of the power of the Spirit in the churches in Galatia was one of life. And, and preservation, and keeping, and empowering with boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel in spite of the persecution that they had encountered. It's absolutely remarkable when we begin to understand the context of what Paul is speaking into. And so I was just thinking, for us today, church, can we not ask ourselves the same question? Have we not received the Spirit by something that we did at first? Or have we not, sorry, did we receive the Spirit by something we did at first? Or have we not received Him by our belief and faith in what Christ has done? Are there events and circumstances within our lives that we too can recall to mind and, and, and thereby just um, uh, um, making us uh, understand that it was by faith that we take a hold of these things? that it was not by our own might, that it was not by our own ability, but that it was by the Spirit of God. I know that if you are of faith, each one of us has some sort of testimony 
of the power of the Spirit of God for our life. May it be like us today, a reminder that the Spirit of God is at work within us and thereby testifying to the, the veracity of the gospel being alive and true to us and to those who are around us. And so Paul is going to use this now to form the basis for what he's going to go on and say in the remainder of these verses. And so what I want to do is just stir in our hearts today these things concerning the gospel of Jesus, concerning the Spirit's work in the process of our justification. And in verses 2 through 5, Paul fires off four rhetorical questions, all with the aim of appealing to what they had already experienced of the Spirit's work in their coming to faith. The first one I actually just spoke on, but just to restate it so we can have it in our nice kind of four-point sermon format. The first rhetorical question was aimed at the issue of origination. What was the origin of the Spirit within them? Was it works of the law or was it faith in Jesus Christ? Was it works of the law or was it faith in Jesus Christ? And as I've already said, the answer is that the Spirit is given, of course, quite obviously, the Spirit is given to us as part of our faith response. And then the second question that he asks them is concerning the completion of their faith. And he says this now in verse uh, 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected, having begun by the Spirit, that's what he was just talking about. Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's as though sometimes, church, we want to say, okay, God, that's good enough. I'll take it from here. I've got it. You've started it well. Now I'm going to add to it a little bit of mat, which we know is not going to be any good. It's just going to spoil the whole, it's going to spoil the whole thing. But it's like we want to do that at times. It's like, all right, God, that's good enough. I'll take it from here. Did you guys see that movie, What About Bob? Yeah. We've all seen What About Bob. There's a scene in that movie where Dr. Leo Marvin, he's standing up in his bedroom, and Bob is helping his son learn how to dive. His son's got this deathly afraid of diving, right? And there's a scene where Bob's holding onto him like this, and the kid dives, and, he, and the doctor sees it from the window. And it's the funniest scene. He comes down. He's like, that's great, Bob. I got it from here. I'll take it from here. That's wonderful. And he walks over and he comes to Bob who's on the dock and he pushes him into the water while he's holding this kid by the seat of his pants. You guys remember that scene? It's way funnier than I just said it. But listen, the reason I, I was thinking about that just now is because we're like the doctor, Leo Marvin where we, we want to just push God to the side and say, that's great, we'll take it from here. We do that. We so readily accept that our justification, our coming to faith, what we consider our, what we call salvation, we readily accept, church, that our justification is by faith and faith alone in Christ Jesus. I would assume and assume that every person here 
believes that statement. But how easily, once we have come to that point, when it comes to moving on in our life, how easily we fall out of that conviction and into a conviction of adding to what God has done. It's so easy. Because on the one hand, we're to work out our faith with fear and trembling, are we not? And we understand that that righteousness and we understand that holiness produces good works. So there is a biblical principle where we expect to work alongside with God. But there's this tendency in the human heart And as I spoke on a couple of weeks ago, it originates in the original sin within the garden where we want to somehow take control and have control and and take the place that only God should have within our hearts and our minds. And we add to and we seek to add to what God has already done when really what God is saying to us, brothers and sisters, is rest in the finished work Cease from striving. Cease from endeavoring to add to. I am fully pleased and fully satisfied with the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Believe it in faith. Take a hold of it in faith and rest in it. Rest in it. And so in this question that Paul asks, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh. The obvious answer, of course, is that not only is it the Spirit who begins, but it's the Spirit who completes. Again, I'm talking about this, this point here of, uh, of Paul talking about the, the, the completion of faith by the Spirit of God or the completion of the work of justification by the Spirit of God. Paul will make this point later when writing to the Philippians, and it's a a verse that we know so well in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where he says that I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. This has got to be, church, one of the most invigorating truths of the Christian faith, that it is God who is at work within us to finish what he starts. Do you understand what I mean by that? I'm not even just talking about our eternal salvation and the assurance of that. I'm talking about to bring about the effects of of justification by way of the process of sanctification in our life, to see those things materialized and to to be ingrained within us and to produce fruit and maturity and growth on into Christ likeness. He will certainly complete what he starts, church which means that his process is most certain as well. All we must do is believe in faith and trust the Spirit's work within us. We need not to concern ourselves with whether or not our salvation will stick because what was begun by the Spirit through faith continues by the Spirit and is finished by the Spirit. That's our assurance. And as I said a moment ago, this this theologian, this commentary I was quoting, he says it this way, that the way into the Christian life is also the way on in the Christian life. The gospel of Jesus, the true, the only gospel, establishes us through the power of the Spirit when we first believe. 
And in fact, it's the Spirit's work within us that causes us to believe in the first place. It's the Holy Spirit that makes our hearts alive to believing God's call of grace. But then the gospel continually reminds us that it is the righteous who live by faith. That it's the Spirit of God working out within us. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, church. Only God finishes what He begins. We have nothing to add to it. And then thirdly, so He speaks first, talks of the origination of the Spirit as it pertains to their justification. Then he, then he addresses the issue of the completion of the Spirit. Who's going to finish this work? And of course, we know that the answer is the Spirit of God. And then thirdly, he goes on, he talks about now their participation. What is their experience? And he appeals to this experience of theirs. He says this in verse 4, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And this question has to do with, he wants them to consider all that they had experienced thus far in their faith walk. And he uses the word suffer, and so perhaps in his use of the word suffer, he's intentionally calling to mind some of the things that I referred to from Acts chapter 14, like the, the literal cost that they themselves had paid or perhaps that they were aware of had been paid in the establishing of the gospel in that region. But if you have a study Bible, you might see that in the footnotes of your study Bible, the word there for suffer is actually, can also be translated as the word experience. Did you experience so many things in vain, he says. Perhaps he's appealing then not necessarily just to the suffering that they've endured for the gospel, but on a broader level, Paul is bringing to mind and speaking about the entirety of their Christian experience. After all, is, is, is not the whole of the Christian life, church, marked out by the sovereign work of God, not just to save, but to sustain, to empower, to guide, to provide for, to lead us, to compel us, to keep us, and to move us forward into righteousness? Is not all of that the work of the Spirit? What are the mile markers of your Christian walk, brothers and sisters? And listen, again, I'm not saying that we need necessarily, although we do sometimes, we need to remind ourselves of the work of the gospel. But my point is saying, let's remember that this is what the gospel is. It's the work of the Spirit, and, and let's establish in our own hearts. So in the moments of question, in the moments of derision, in the moments of uncertainty in our own hearts, we're reminded, no, this is the work of the Spirit of God. This is what God has done. These are the markers of my life that point my heart and my mind in faith to what Christ has done in the truthfulness in my life. Does that make sense? This is what Paul's doing. Did you suffer so many things in vain? Certainly hope that you didn't. I believe that this is Paul's point. The Spirit is at work in every aspect of our life, attesting to our justification in Christ and applying its effects to us each and every day until the day when either He returns 
or we draw our last breath. The experience of our life attests to the Spirit being alive within us. Our Christian life, at least. And then lastly and finally, similar but not the same, in verse 5, his final appeal as it relates to the work of the Spirit in their life is, does, he asks them this, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And his purpose in asking them this question was specifically intended to draw to mind the confirmation of God's work by the Holy Spirit's power. He's essentially asking them, how did the Spirit first work in you? Now remember that these are Jew and Gentile believers alike. And so for the Gentiles, the outpouring of the Spirit on Cornelius and all of those who gathered with him there in Acts chapter 10, it marked the moment where the gospel was just as much for the Gentiles as it was for the Jews. Could you imagine, I don't think we can, the significance of that for a Gentile believer? When the Holy Spirit was given an equal weight, an equal measure, an equal power to prophesy and to speak in heavenly language for the Gentiles, just as it was for the Jews in Acts chapter 2. Paul is saying to them, do you remember the miracles that the Spirit has worked among you? Do you remember the power of the Spirit, not just to bring you to salvation, but to work in and through you, both in the, throughout you in the duration of your life, but also in terms of its permeation through you into the world around you? Remember the miracles, Paul saying. The dunamis of the Spirit poured out on the Gentile believers to prophesy, to proclaim with boldness, to speak what is true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we know this when we studied through the charismata, Paul says that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. To each is given the manifestation. To each and every believer, the Spirit is given. And Paul says, for the common good. But it isn't just a past tense that Paul's speaking of because it's the Spirit who works, present tense, Paul says, who works miracles among you. So the implication is that the Spirit of God continues in this outpouring throughout the duration of a believer's life. Church, this is what we pursue in part when we gather together. Why? Because somehow, so then we might feel like a super Christian who harnesses the power of heaven at our every, every whim. Of course not. Absolutely not. That's not why we pursue it. We pursue the Spirit's tangible work because it confirms to us and to others that we are Christ's. What's more, it attests to the Christ's ascension to where he is seated above all earthly or heavenly authority, not bound or limited by any force or any power apart from his own will. It confirms that we're his. It attests to Christ's ascension. 
and the working of the Holy Spirit in his people it apply God's truth, our justification, to mature us in understanding and to reaffirm his commission to go as his ambassadors with the same empowerment and in his authority. That's why we pursue the Holy Spirit, church. That's why we welcome the Spirit. So when we say something like, Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. Does he need our invitation? No, but what does it do? It reminds our own hearts. That's right. That's why we're here. We're here to be spoken to. We're here to grow. We're here to be conformed. We're here to be changed. We're here to have the Holy Spirit work out our justification in this present moment because God knows that I need it. Because God knows that I need to be reminded of these things. And so, brothers and sisters, when we look at these four things, we see that Paul has put together, put together this beautiful tapestry of, of like a holistic Christian life where the Holy Spirit is at work permeating every part of our being. How, it we, be, how we begin, how we continue, how we will finish, what He has done, how He is at work right now in our life. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, listen, it's all by the Spirit of God. So therefore, church, stop adding to it as if we could do anything more than this. What the heck do we have to offer? Nothing. We have nothing to offer but our faith, which is pleasing to God. So, as for the true gospel, when we look at and when we pursue understanding of the gospel in this way, isn't it then remarkable how easy it is to identify what is counterfeit? It's easy. What is not of the Spirit, church? The Spirit of God testifies to the truthfulness of the gospel. The Spirit of God testifies by signs and wonders the truthfulness of the gospel. Let's believe this for ourselves. Let's take hold of this for this church. Let's embody this for this day and age that we live in. Amen?